and a warm welcome to everyone joining us from wherever you're joining us. Um, it is a very uh, special session because uh, Sam Petroda's name is one that uh, many have uh, known for a very long time. Sam's had a very long career um, and a very interesting and exciting career in many ways. And, and Sam's uh, new book, this one, Redesign the World, is, um, is just out and has some of uh, a, a brand new set of ideas about how to think about the world. Um, Sam, I'm going to start by asking you an open-ended question because I know everyone will want to hear this. This book is very much um, a pandemic book, isn't it? I think the, the lockdown, uh, the change in pace, the isolation for many of us was also uh, a period of deep introspection um, and thinking about not only our lives, how we lead them, what matters to us on a personal level, but also in your book, you have really thought about not just resetting one's own personal life, but resetting the planet itself and how we govern various aspects of our lives. And you've talked about the five uh, pillars, the five aspects of life that need redesigning. So is it, is it, uh, does it, is this book the result of a personal crisis, would you say, or deep introspection? Uh, what was the provocation for writing the book now? Thank you. you. Thank you, Mukulika. First of all, I really want to thank Bridge India for this opportunity. Thank Pratik for organizing it. And thank you, Dr. Mukulika Banerjee and Dr. or Professor Julian Beer for moderating it. In response to your question, I would say that I've been thinking about this for quite some time. You know, I'm about 80 years old. And at this time in life, you really want to reflect on what you have done, what was world like when you were born, and what has happened to this world in 80 years. And I realized that the world was last designed just about the time I was born. I was born in British Raj. And then Corona crisis added to my sort of worldview. And I thought this would be a good way to use my time effectively in a self-quarantine at home in Chicago. So a lot of things came together. It wasn't one thing that sort of resulted in this book. It was part of my journey, reflecting on the world, what I thought needed to be done. And it was a pretty sort of bold idea to say that I'm going to help think about redesigning the world. And, you know, since I'm on the board of one of the largest design institute in the world for last decade, we talk a great deal about design, but we don't really talk about redesign. It is one thing to talk about design of a product 
And it's another thing to talk about redesigning a world. And to me, once I looked at the fact that world was designed 80 years ago, it was clear that no design is good enough for eight decades. Lots of things happen. You know, if you go and look at the history, that design created UN, World Bank, NATO, WTO, WHO, GDP, GNP, per capita income, balance of payment. And that design is used as the rule-based system throughout the world for the last 80 years. That design was based on democracy, human rights, capitalism, consumption, and military. I think that design has done pretty well. But now, things have changed. That design gave us peace, lifted millions out of poverty, provided you know, longevity, infant mortality, improvements, and all kinds of things happen. But at the same time, we have not been able to deal with the issues related to environmental blunders, poverty, hunger, violence. And I think it is about time we take humanity to the next level. My background is hyperconnectivity. So I realized that the hyperconnectivity is the key to redesigning the world. For the first time in the human history, we are all connected. What does it mean to live in a connected world? Unfortunately, we use hyperconnectivity to do the same thing we have been doing bigger, better, cheaper, faster. My question is can we use hyperconnectivity to do things we have never done before in the history to take humanity to the next level? And that essentially resulted in this book. We can talk more about it, but the bottom line is design is 80 years old. I define seven key things that happened, decolonization of the world, rise of China, fall of Soviet Union, 9-11, rise of technology, rise of inequality, and finally, corona crisis. To me, corona crisis says we are all connected, interconnected, interwoven, interdependent. What happens in one part of the world affects everybody. And we can't isolate ourselves. So at the end of the day, there are really two important things in life. One, planet. And two, people. Our planet is in pain because we have made a mess out of environmental issues. Our people are in pain because of inequality. Few people are very rich and lots of people are very poor. Today we live in a economy of surplus. We can do anything. We need to decide to do the right things. And at the end of the day, people matter. That's the next major challenge. We sort of divide people based on race, religion, caste, color, location. Look at what is happening with the corona crisis. The situation in Africa is very different from situation in America. So I think we need to focus on 
lifting millions and millions below poverty line because we have the capability today to do that. But for that, we need new mindset, new thinking. And that's why this book. Thank you. I, I want to hear about, I want to hear you talk about your proposals in greater detail. But before uh, we come to that, can I, and you've laid it out very clearly in the book, so the book makes for a great read, but I want to ask you something that's not in the book, right? For many of us, uh, as Pratik said, introducing you that you are the father of IT in India, you really reimagined and designed India's connectivity in the 80s in a radical way. So you've kind of done a big design or redesign, however you call it, once for a country as vast and diverse as India. Having done that, what would you say are the biggest challenges when reimagining the seven, the five sectors that you talk about? You have experience of doing this. So what are the lessons? I think the one lesson is political will. We need political will to do the things that needs to be done. We can't worry about petty politics personal agenda, parochial view of the world. We got to think beyond ourselves, And we need to think of only two things, planet and people. Once you really rise to that level, things begin to become very clear. You know, at my age, you look at world very differently. It is not in terms of how much money I want to make. You know, I always say that my parents and grandparents gave me a world which was clean, poor, and simple. I am leaving behind for my grandchildren world that is complex, polluted, and rich. Look at what is going on today with social media. Look at what is going on today with global conflicts. Look at what happened in Afghanistan trillion dollar spent and what did we accomplish? Because we are not, not really thinking of humanity. We are thinking of command and control, power, superpower. I mean, these are all old ways of looking at the world. See, today there are two visions in the world. One is American vision, which is to continue with the design we had, strengthen it, through Chinese vision, which is based on Belt and Road Initiative. But both visions talk about superpower, command and control, economy. You look at all the global conversations today. These conversations focus on geopolitical equations, markets, trade, military. It's a wrong conversation. We need to change that conversation through a third vision, which is not based on command and control, but which is based on networking, collaboration, cooperation, communication, co-creation, and that's where hyperconnectivity comes in. I mean, look, in 2021, we are so violent. We kill people. We spend $2 trillion 
in building hardware to kill people when we know we need 200 billion only to eliminate hunger completely. Why don't we do that? During Corona crisis, I have not heard of one global leader who said, I will reduce my defense budget to improve my health infrastructure. It's not a rocket science. Why isn't anyone saying it? I find global leaders pretty hollow. We don't have the leaders like Gandhi, Mandela, Martin Luther King. That's what we need. We need leaders who are willing to sacrifice and not willing to promote themselves. And I, I feel sorry at the state of world we are in. On one hand, we have all the capabilities. We have developed so many interesting things thanks to science, scientists and engineers. We can produce anything today. The question is, what are we going to produce? You see, best brains in the world are busy solving problems of the rich who really don't have problems to solve. And as a result, problems of the poor don't get the right talent. And it is in our interest to lift the people at the bottom of the pyramid because it is going to make better world for all of us. All conflicts in the world, according to me, come out of exclusion. You exclude people, there is conflict. You include people, you begin to have conversation. And you then begin to solve problems together. We still have old mindset. Many times I have said we have 19th century mindset, 20th century processes, and 21st century needs. The, the, the political will that you started with, um, you experienced it twice in India, right? I mean, you had it first in the 80s, working first with Indira Gandhi, then with Rajiv Gandhi, really. And then as head of the Knowledge Commission in uh, the UPA government. Yep. So do you see that kind of political will? Yes, we don't have Mandela or Martin Luther King or Gandhi around, but we do have a fair degree of progressive leaders around the world. Do you see this to be something that a national government could adopt as a set of policies as part of their Absolutely. manifesto? Or is this because Absolutely. the institutions you mentioned are the Bretton Woods institutions, right? That was an international agreement that created those multilateral institutions. So do you see that kind of national cooperation as quite central to your redesign? Absolutely. Mukulika, it is very important. The other thing is we have not created one new global institution in last 80 years of that magnitude. How can you have the same institutions for 70, 80 years? We need new institutions. We need new organizational architecture. See, the old architecture was basically in vertical silos, command and control. The new architecture is flat, networking, collaboration. We have that in the modern companies. Why can't we have it in modern nations? Why do you need a minister of civil aviation or minister of, let's say, you know, shipping or textile. Those days are over. We need to learn to restructure our institutions. 
And this is something that really can be taken up by G20. If G20 people all come together and seriously give this a thought or give someone like me a chance to speak to them, at the end of the day, they are all good people. They all mean well. But they are locked up in their own systems. And we need to get them out of their system. And somebody has to think out of the box. Stand up and say, hey, enough is enough. We are not going to live like this. We are now mature to a point we can sort our differences across the table. And we don't need nuclear warheads to sort our differences. How can we build that kind of a military infrastructure when we have hungry people all over? You know, I was in Silicon Valley a couple of months ago. And the amount of people sleeping on the street in San Francisco is appalling. This is the richest city perhaps in the US, in the richest country in the world. Many, many millionaires, a small little house cost $5 million. And outside of that house is homeless sleeping. Why? Why do we have in US, you know, largest number of people in prison? Why do we have drug cartel and we spend millions and millions across the border in US? The US is one example. Same thing goes on everywhere in the world. So I think it's about time to redesign the world. Thank you. Uh, Professor uh, Beer, shall I, can, can I invite you to join the conversation at this point? You've read the book and, and um, you wanted to comment. Yes, um, yeah, very thought provoking. Um, uh, but as a social scientist, uh, it does strike me that it's an engineer's book in terms of redesigning. But Sam knows that uh, you know, the vested interests, politics, economics, everything has a, has a role in this. And you know, wholeheartedly agree with everything Sam said. It is time to redesign, absolutely. Uh, the question for me is how, and what is the, uh, what is the driver? Um, everything for change needs something to drive it, a burning bridge as we call it uh, in the UK. And I think um, we're witnessing um, those drivers now and very stark drivers in terms of climate change, for instance, um, where if we do not act together, um, I think we're what I call uh, facing a Thanos uh, moment uh, for the world, uh, where the world is trying to um, rebalance itself uh, by creating, uh, well, we're creating it, but um, fighting back by creating situations where large swathes of the population are dying for one reason or another, whether that's a pandemic or whether that's uh, shortages of resources like water uh, and food. Um, so I think the world is fighting back against us um, of being on this planet. And we do need to think about how we can tackle this together. But as Sam said, and uh, we all acknowledge, there are many, many things to do in terms of the politics, the economics. And I just don't think there are enough leaders in the world at the moment who would put their interests, the world's interests, before their own. Um, Sam mentioned, uh, you know, the US, China, and you know, all of those competing tensions for um, being dominant uh, across the planet. Uh, what they forget or 
put to the back of their minds because it's uh, something they can push down the road a little bit is, you know, if we don't do what Sam's suggesting um, pretty quickly, we're not going to have the opportunity because we're all going to be in absolute crisis. Thank you, Professor Beer. I agree with you and thank you for your sort of support. And, uh, you know, I very strongly feel that you cannot just look at climate control yeah. as one issue. Yeah, that's right. You've got to look at inclusion yeah. as part of climate control. Yeah. You've got to look at new economy as part of climate control. You've got to look at nonviolence, sustainability, conservation. All of these things have to be packaged together. You I'm cannot take okay. climate control out of it and say, I'm going to build military infrastructure and I'll have climate control. You can't do that. Yeah. Okay. And another so key, I, key component is education. Exactly. Uh, and exactly. You know, that is transformative in itself in people's outlooks and their views okay. about the world and the systems uh, that make up the world. So, yeah, I'll just add that, uh, that final point. Yeah. So, you know, my main issue is that you cannot take one element and work on it. You got to work on all five at the same time because that's how we built the design, last design. And the starting point, like Professor Beer said, is education, is new conversation. First, we need a new global conversation. Then we need attention of the global leaders at G20 to say, hey, we need to redesign the world. Once you have the political will, we all know how to do it. And we will learn in the process. We will make mistakes, which is okay. But we are not going to kill millions and millions in the process. Okay. Okay. Learn to sacrifice. Yes, Mukulika. Um, I was just going to say, I have already got three really interesting questions. So why don't I take them? Because it will allow you to elaborate, I think, more uh, yeah. what you're talking about. So the first one is from Shiju Varghese. And he says, basically, to summarize a long question, what he's really asking is whether democracy comes in the way of redesign. Uh, because in order to have the political will, do you uh, need an authoritarian government like the Chinese Communist Party uh, in order to effect that change? Otherwise, the cycles of performance and expectation are too short with the next elections around the corner. So do you think democracy is a no, bad I think thing? Exactly opposite. I think exactly opposite. I think democracy is the only platform to bring about generational change because it empowers every human being. And the hyper-connectivity is in tune with democracy. Of course, it is being used today by central authorities in a very effective way. But in the long run, Hyperconnectivity is all about empowering human beings, strengthening democracy, decentralizing decision making, implementation, demonetizing services. So I think democracy is critical to begin new conversation. We got to carry people with us. No, you can't build a new design of the world without caring large number of people with us. It is not something that works top down. It has to work bottom up. So I would say democracy is very vital 
but there are different forms of democracy. Chinese can say they have democracy also, which is okay. I have no disagreement with that. US has a democracy. India can say it has democracy. And Turkey can say it has democracy. It's the degree of it. I think democracy is the fundamental requirements. Human rights, respect for human being is a fundamental requirement. So the redesign has to be built on what we have already accomplished. It is not sort of a revolution. It's an evolution. I want to take democracy to inclusion. We want to take human rights to human needs. We want to take capitalism to new economy. We want to take consumption to conservation and sustainability. And we want to take military to non-violence. That doesn't mean you don't need military. You do need military to keep some sense of security. So I think the idea is to build on what we have already accomplished, but build with focus on planet and focus on people. Okay, so there are two related questions. One related to what Julian was saying earlier about education, which has just come in from Gauranga Das, mm -hmm. uh, which is, do you think that the lack of education itself inhibits the political process? For conversations to take place, education is a precondition, but the leaders lack it. What do you think about it? Also, what do you think of the rise of populist politics, um, which affects the proper functioning of democracy in effective, genuine ways? A prior question to that is about um, uh, how the three of us are asking. Somebody's phone is going off. I do apologize. No problem. Please go ahead. Uh, Sanjay, Sanjay has asked a question that's related, saying, how do the three of us see uh, the solution to this in terms of what, what kind of catalyst is required? For this redesign. I have my own thoughts on this, but it'll be interesting to hear um, perhaps first from Julian and then from Sam uh, about education since you raised the issue of it. Yeah, I would say education as we understand today is not an issue. The issue is new conversation. Mm. You know, we are all educated. We don't need to be re-educated and it'll take another 20 years. But we need a new conversation. The conversation today is rubbish because it is all about geopolitical equations, market, trade. You know, look at the amount of space people spend on stock market every day. It is important. But millions of people feel happy because the market is up and not very happy because market is down. So I think the key is to really change the conversation. Okay. Education is part of the process. We need to educate people to change the conversation. We need to educate people saying, hey, this is not the right way to do it. Can we begin to look at things differently? Can we really begin to focus on planet and people? So that kind of education, I agree. Okay. And, you know, until global leaders all realize that we need a redesign, we can talk but it won't really take roots. So I think leadership at G20 
is critical for G7 because it is in everybody's interest to do this. To me, the rise of populist movement all over the world is a knee-jerk reaction to connectivity. I believe connectivity is going to strengthen democracy and people are worried. They see their power being eroded. So to me, it is a knee-jerk reaction which may last for 5, 10, 15 years. But in the long run, people's voice will have to be paid attention to because everybody is going to be empowered. Today, social media is misused by spreading lies, by attacking people at a personal level. But I think people will figure it out, the difference between truth and lies. You see, when I look at world today, I find that we need democracy. So you have authoritarian mindset. We need human rights, so they control. We need freedom, so they want to control press and institutions. We talk about love, they talk about hate. We talk about truth, they talk about lies. We talk about trust, they mistrust. So I think it is exactly 180 degrees opposite to what world needs today. And it's going to change. They cannot survive in the long run because of hyperconnectivity, because people are being empowered. You know, right now it's a knee-jerk reaction. Right now these are perturbations. In the long run, people will see that this is false and this is truth. People will see that fellow is a liar and this fellow is not a liar. It'll happen. It's a matter of time. Thank you, Sam. Um, Julian, did you want to come in at all or, or sh should we take the yeah. other questions? Yeah, just um, what Sam said then about um, what we need is democracy with an authoritarian mindset. Absolutely agree with him. Um, if you look at the approach of China, and I'm not advocating that the redesign is the approach of China, but they had a 25-year strategy, and that is a rolling strategy. And populism has led to 25-day strategy for some politicians um, in the UK and elsewhere, um, nice. which doesn't lead to that long-term thinking about what we need to do exactly. uh, as a society. Um, but yeah, that, I like that, that democracy with an authoritarian <laughs> mindset is, a, is, is a one I will remember. Uh, so thank you, Sam. But also Sam mentioned um, that connectivity and education coming to the point in the, in the chat bar. Um, we do need to redefine education, in my opinion, as well. And what we're doing um, in my university and in India, uh, in the Punjab, with the Punjabi government, with the uh, Munjal uh, Foundation, uh -huh. is looking at um, uh, what we, a concept we call STEAM. So that's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, yeah. Yeah. putting the arts and creativity right alongside it. So when we're looking at these problems, uh, we're coming at it from all of the different horizontal angles rather than vertical uh, academic disciplines. Mm -hmm. and we're adding in the users uh, and people that um, want to come up with solutions. And we're looking at solutions for problems or inventing, coming up with new ideas, new products and services in a very different way. And that's something we're working very closely with the Indian government on in terms of not that rote learning, but actually problem solving and looking at things from very, very different perspectives. So, yeah, and I heard what Sam was saying about that. So that is the engineer working alongside the social scientist, the artist, 
um, the creative brains actually trying to come up with new um, solutions to the, the problems that we all face. Dr. Beer, what you're saying basically is that education needs to be sort of uh, redesigned. But I find that the fundamental issue today is character. Mm. How do we train young people to build right character? You know, when a lot of young people ask me for advice, I said, just focus on building a good self. Yeah. Everything else will fall in place. If your self is disciplined, creative, respectful, ethical, moral, loving, caring, things will fall in place. But if your self is selfish, if your self is manipulative, if your self is looking for shortcuts to take advantage of somebody, you will have a serious problem in life. You know, so I tell young people, math and all that is important, but more important is what kind of a self you have built. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we are losing track of that. Yeah. You know, business schools teach more about how to extract value and not how to create value. Don't disagree. Um, uh, Sam, there is a question from Tanmay Mishra, and he he's uh, his question is: What kind of role do, do you see for young people in redesigning the world? And you know, I'm raising it now because you started talking about young people. And if I can just add to what you've said and to Tanmay's question, that really the in many ways the progressive ideas in today's politics are coming from the young. The leadership of the climate crisis are coming. So you're right that the ethical self is absolutely central to the redesign. But as a university professor dealing with young students all the time, I often actually see young people have a much greater sense of ethics than, uh, than you know, people in the older generations who've created the mess that we are in at the moment. Would you agree or not? Yes. I think the challenge with young is to keep their idealism alive. Their idealism dies very soon. But that's our responsibility, isn't it? No, but every young person gets to be our age. Okay? It is personally their responsibility. But when they get to work, all kinds of constraints begin to show up. When they raise family, they want to compare themselves with others and they cut corners. And their idealism sort of changes. If they keep their idealism, they will change the world. They have to demand change. I know Tanmay. Uh, I think I've spoken to him a couple of times. He's a bright young man who wants to do lots of things. I respect him. And I would tell Tanmay to come join in this process of redesigning the world. Get more people to talk about it, to demand change. And it's not rocket science. It's basically a simple way of looking at the design. Don't get into micromanagement. Look at the macro picture. I want inclusive world. I want other human beings, whether it is women, black, Dalit, poor, 
I want to treat them with great respect, dignity, equality. Not asking for rocket science. Can we do that? If we do that, we won't have this tension in the world. Look at Black Lives Matter in America. Look at the way Dalits are treated in India. Look at minorities, the way they are treated everywhere else. And then you wonder why there is a lot of stress in the world. Because we don't treat people. We don't give them access to opportunities. We corner off all the good things for a handful of people. We don't share enough. And that creates problems. Exclusion is the root cause of all conflicts. You include people, you reduce tension. There is, uh, there is another, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but there's another uh, question from, a, from the same person, Gauranga, again, which is actually a very interesting example. And I hope he doesn't mind my using his uh, question as, as an example of what Sam is talking about. The question is redesigning education for building characters. Uh, no, sorry, the earlier one. How the villagers with lack of education can be made part of the conversation. There's huge inequality of educational opportunity. How would we make that conversation possible? And I just wanted to say that as a anthropologist who spent a lot of time living and doing research in rural India amongst villagers, uh, what we see, yes, there are lack of opportunities. There's lack of education, formal education, there's lack of healthcare, you know, the basic things in order to have the capabilities to lead a full life are missing in rural India. And yet often the kind of ethical belief and humanity that you're talking about doesn't necessarily, is not missing just because there is lack of formal education. So part of addressing this inequality issue is also uh, learning to respect all sections of population and not assuming somehow that the educated urban upper caste is likely to have more knowledge that has to be imparted to others. Wouldn't you say in the Indian context at least? I agree. My grandfather could not read or write, but I thought he was highly educated. He understood everything. He knew what is right, what is wrong, what is fair, what is unfair. I always give this example. My mother delivered eight children in a small little tribal village in Orissa. No medical doctor, no nurse, no pharmacy, no telephone, no electricity, no running water, no radio. All eight out of eight turned out to be mentally healthy, physically healthy. They all came to America and settled here. They must have done something right. What is that they did? We have lost track of it. On one hand, we say there is no good health service in rural India. But look, in the same rural India, she delivered eight children and did well. I think we tend to judge people based on our way of modern standards. If we think there is a great hospital, rural India has health service. Not true. So we need to learn from them. We need to listen to them. We need to look at bottom up and not top down approach. We don't need mega factories. We need small SMEs to network, to create scale. I think our whole thinking is based on optimizing finance and not optimizing human capacity. You know, you look at why did American 
businesses go to China. They went to China because they saw there is a way to make profit. There is a way to then also transfer your labor problems. So you don't have unions, let Chinese worry about unions and labor problems. In the process, they lost all the local jobs. Now local people don't have purchasing power. So if they had worked on optimizing human capacity as opposed to profit, it would be a different architecture. So I think this GDP, GNP idea, which says always focus on money, needs to really be expanded to say, what are we doing to environment, gross environmental product? What are we doing to local people, gross human development product? So I am big on localization. At the same time, globalization, there is no conflict. It is not black and white. It is not dictatorship and democracy. It is shades of gray. And I think we must learn to play with shades of gray comfortably and not immediately compartmentalize everybody. We tend to compartmentalize everybody. And as a result, we build boundaries. And if you have continuum grayscale, you don't build boundaries. That's a very nice um, point to, I think, conclude, draw this very interesting discussion to a close. Um, I think we have, we've taken everyone's uh, questions. Yes, there is an issue of public policy. Um, thank you to everyone uh, who is here for your questions, for participating um, in this very interesting discussion. And thank you to Professor Julian Beer for your thoughts. Uh, I think Julian and I have both had previews of this book that all of you really must go out and get a copy. It's available in India and globally everywhere. Um, uh, and there are details of upcoming um, Bridge India events in the chat box, so you can see them, uh, check out their website. But more than anything else, Sam, thank you. It is uh, what mid-morning for you in Chicago, so thank you for joining us this early and, and for writing this book and provoking us to have the courage to reimagine, uh, to redesign. Thank you. Thank you, Mukulika. Thank you, Professor Bear. I look forward to your support. Hope we have many more conversations like this. So you can help me take the word out. You have your own network, which I have no access to. So I think it's important to have this conversation. And I look forward to extending this conversation. Okay. Thank you for your support. And thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much, sir. Thanks, Bridget.